want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Today's episode is a speaker's panel discussion and Q&A hosted by Dr. Jason Redberg. Uh, so we did not talk about Ecclesiastes during our time today, so we want to have a little bit of a conversation about that. Uh, we'll start with John. Uh, could you give us some thoughts on Christ in Ecclesiastes? And then uh, if you have preached it, brothers, feel free to chime in with additional thoughts to what John says, and specifically uh, thoughts on preaching Ecclesiastes. Yeah, so Ecclesiastes is another um, complicated one. There's, there's some weird... Dad mentioned the, like the two or three uh, options that people take for Song of Solomon. There's, there's a couple different ones that people take for Ecclesiastes and who don't want to see Solomon as the author. I believe he is. I mean, I, I take the I take the text at face value, and I and <laughs> take the context of First Kings four and and et cetera. Um, and so I think so. I think what's happening in Ecclesiastes is Solomon, uh, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is basically meditating on Genesis three and the curse of sin and death uh, and the futility of creation. And so I know Juan, Dad mentioned Genesis three. Juan mentioned Genesis three. I do think it. I think it sets up everything that comes after it. And so I think that's what he's reflecting on. And so he's reflecting on life under the sun, in this cursed world. Everything seems to be, you know, havel. It's it's uh, whether you translate it like fleeting or futile or meaningless or whatever. Like it's just it's just very frustrating. It's it's. It's Genesis three. It's Romans eight, right? Creation's groaning. It's and so he's so he's meditating on that. And what's happening in in Ecclesiastes is the, the I, I think things sometimes in movie illustrations. Like what's happening is um, if you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day, uh, where Bill Murray lives the same day over and over and over again, right? Groundhog's Day. And he's in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and people who studied that movie say that he in order for him to master all of the skills that he mastered, like becoming proficient at uh, the piano and French poetry and ice sculpture and all that, that it, he lived the same day for 34 straight years. Okay. And there's this really poignant scene in, in the movie where he's in a bar uh, with these two guys who are getting drunk and he, and he's just talking in this conversation with them. And he said, what would you do if nothing you ever did really mattered? And every day was the exact same. And, and that's just the way life is. And the two drunk guys look at each other and they go, well, pretty much sums it up for me. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's just, like, it's just like this recognition that they're living out the same existence he's living out. They're just, they're just unaware of it. And it's not until um, he you know, falls in love with Andy McDowell's character at the end and he says to her, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What I do know is I'm happy right now. And then the curse is broken and he gets to February 3rd. And so in Ecclesiastes, that's a lot of what Solomon's doing is he's, he's saying, look, you're living in this broken existence. You don't, we don't know anything um, 
you know, it happens above the sun. We're living in this existence under the sun. But then he gives you these carpe diem passages of just, hey, there's nothing better for man to do while he's here than to enjoy the life God's given him, to work hard, uh, to enjoy these good, you know, the, the, these gifts that God has given to you. And then he ends, he ends the book in the exact same place that Proverbs, um, we were talking about in Proverbs, right? That the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so I can go through the whole thing, but at, at the end there, basically what what I think he's arguing and, and, and um, what I think he's pushing towards, he's talking about the words of the preacher being a goad. So it's like 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 trying to, to prick us and to point us in the right direction. And that direction that he's trying to point us is to Christ, the one who has fulfilled the law, the one who... Um, the one who has kept uh, the wisdom of uh, the, of Proverbs of Ecclesiastes, who's the, who's the embodiment of the Torah, um, and so I think it's that frustration of being in this existence is meant to point us to Christ, who's the one who's going to uh, redeem us from that. So I think that's a lot of what's happening in the Book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I think it was Jerome who said it's an interesting phrase. He he said, "Is there anything more vain?" than this vain thing, the earth, which was created for man, continues on while man dissolves into the dust. Mm. And that's really like what Ecclesiastes is getting at, but there's this, this hope that somebody is going to fulfill the wisdom and, and that there is going to be this redemption. And then one other place I'll point to, and I'd love to hear what the other guys say, uh, this, this is Sinclair Ferguson pointed this out in, in Ecclesiastes 9, um, verse 13 and following, this is what uh, the word says. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. And he just says, who is the poor wise man who saves the city and is yet not treated with the estimation that he needs? Um, and so that, I think those are some of the ways I would approach. And I, I've written about this in, in the Exalting Christ and Ecclesiastes little commentary as well. Thoughts on preaching it. Juan, have you preached these through Ecclesiastes? Yeah, I have, but I, after what John said, i got to go back and preach it again. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I did preach. I, I'd have to go back and, and see how I structured it. It wasn't as hard as preaching Proverbs. Proverbs I preached, I did it in two sections. I did one through eight expositionally, and then when I came back to it sometime later, I preached nine expositionally like Nate did, and then I chose themes. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I preached Proverbs. Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, I preached from, from beginning to end. I'd be curious to hear how wrong I was. But part of, you know, part of what, it, what I gained, or at least my perspective, was life under the sun. It's a world, it was a worldview thing. It's a godless perspective in the sense of, it, it seemed like to me a helpful apologetic for the world that we live in. For those have a, who have a worldview that is godless, and what I mean by that is, Without God, 
they have a perspective. They're only looking at life under the sun. And life above the sun is the worldview where you realize this is not a closed box system, but there is a God. And so uh, the way that I read it was the futility of living your life thinking there is no God. Uh, so I may have gotten it completely wrong. No, no, I think I, I think that's so. I think that's part of when I say he's uh, meditating on Genesis three. I think he's meditating on the curse of sin and what what this means for human existence if there is no God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's it's futile. It's meaningless. Yeah, yeah. It's that's right. It's yeah. it's whatever. And then at the end is when he's above the sun. Yeah, he's saying this yeah. is the end of the matter. This is yeah. And then obviously I didn't touch on too like even the autobiographical stuff in Ecclesiastes where. Solomon's going on this pursuit of trying to find meaning mm-hmm. in all these things apart from God and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and nothing's whether it's uh, women or wealth or justice or, you know, any of these things, it's, it's not, it's not happening. And so, yeah, no, I think that uh, is what I, I was getting at that, but just in a little bit different mm-hmm. language. The only thing I'd add would be that I think that end calls us back to Genesis two. Like, so if it's, if this is Genesis three, the cursed life, it sort of ends by the whole duty of man was to fear God and keep his commandments, which is what life in the garden was. And so, I mean, sort of connecting two together. Well, what restores life in the garden? It's the rest of that Genesis three promise. So in one sense it is, it's moving Genesis three to Genesis two, which ultimately is moving forward to go back. Going back, go forward. You know what I mean. And that that's part of the of the the carpe diem, like enjoying the blessings yeah. that God that God's given you, um, but not allowing your joy and affection to terminate on the gifts themselves. All right, Juan, you just mentioned this uh, in regards to preaching proverbs, but would love to hear maybe you explain a little bit more, and then. Uh, other guys chime in. So two questions here. Keep in mind, how can you preach the various themes of Proverbs 10 through 29 in a way that is both practical and Christ-centered? And is it best to preach Proverbs verse by verse or topically? Those are the two questions that were submitted. If Maybe explain a little bit more what you did and how you thought through that. And if you've gone through Proverbs, John, you've written on it. You guys can chime in too. Yeah, Nate, I, if you have anything to add, pass. of course. Yeah. I, I guess the only thing that that I would add is, is I just uh, what I when I did the themes, and it's almost like topical preaching, and it was painful. Uh, but but I literally thought of a. I looked at a theme. I think uh, uh, Ray Ortland has the 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 Kent Hughes, the yeah, preach the word series, and he's broken down some themes. Derek Kidner is always helpful. Um, I think Tremper Longman is the one that I looked at as well. Uh, but they they also address some of these themes. Um, and, and I literally, every week, would read from Proverbs 1 to Proverbs 31, yeah. just seeing how it was unfolding, you know, throughout. Um, and so that's probably some of the hardest work I've had to do. Um, but I don't know that I have anything else to add. The, the only nuance I had was when I did the themes, I did them in contrasts. So sort of like intimacy versus immorality, honesty versus deceit. And so try to keep that here, are the two ways, the wise versus folly. So um, set them up as contrast, those yeah. themes that otherwise it was 
that was sort of the way. That's really good. Structure. So, so I, I, think, I think it's almost impossible to preach it expositionally. It's just going to be a lot of repetition and a lot of chaos. So, so one of the things I think, so again, as you heard me say, I think Solomon is doing Deuteronomy 6 for the purpose of Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, he tells them, you're teach, you to teach the law to your kids when you get up, when you go throughout your day, when you go to bed. Okay? And so we all, I think, if those of us who are parents recognize that when you're teaching your kids spiritual things, it's not, it's not like what we're doing today. It's not saying, hey, guys, we're going we're gonna to separate out Monday, and we're going to talk about wisdom. And then tomorrow we'll talk about, you know, how to use your tongue and, and to be careful with your words. And then Wednesday, we're going to talk about everything I know about sex. You know, it doesn't work that way, right? Like you can have a hundred different conversations with your kids or dozens of conversations with your kids over a given day where you're bouncing around from topic to topic to topic. That's why I think Proverbs is kind of arranged in that way. And again, moving from that to the complex of the court stuff at the end of the book. And so I think it's almost impossible to do it. Waltke has tried to lay out a way to do it, but he's like pairing things in different places. So he's still rearranging. And so, so I think I would do exactly what and have done exactly what one to what I did when I preached through Proverbs because I was in almost a year and a half. I preached all the way one through nine expositionally. And then there's, I think maybe two or three other passages that are like didactic texts, you know, pericopes that you can preach. And then obviously the, the noble wife at the end of Proverbs 31 and then the rest is to do thematic and so you can do words you can do uh, relationships you all kinds of work ethic all that kind of stuff but i think what what juan did is helpful if you're going to do the thematic and i call it thematic too because i don't i just resist the word topical um if you're gonna do thematic i would preach a sermon on proverbs 9 or proverbs 1 or proverbs 8 where you're giving the overview of how this theme these themes that you're going to trace point back to the big picture. Like I, I would, I would do a setup sermon of some kind. That's probably going to be a le- less applicational than the rest of the thematic sermons that you're going to do where you're saying, Hey, this is what Proverbs is doing. Now we're going to look at how this fleshes out in this specific theme, but I would set it up in some way so your people can see the big picture in Proverbs. And then let me just say this last thing. If you have, if you're going to pick one commentary, if you want to preach through Proverbs and you want one commentary, I would get Trimper Longman's commentary, okay? It's long enough that he deals with every passage. He also has in the appendix the themes broken out and kind of is tracing how this is being revealed in the, in the book. Waltke's is great, but it's two volumes. It's really expensive, and it's for, for like preaching content. I don't know that you can get anything better than Trimper Longman's, okay? I think Kidner's great. I think Portland's great. Um, there's, there's a bunch of, but, but if I was only going to get one, like scholarly commentary, it would be Trimper Longman's. That's a good question about Proverbs. Cause I was uh, curious cause we struggle with Proverbs. Like Nate said, it's, it's general, you know, these, this, how things work in general. I wondered, John, how connected it is to the old covenant, like blessings and curses. If you do this, you will be blessed. But if you do this, you will be cursed. And I wonder if there's a, a kind of a layer to that, uh, the, the blessings and the curses connection there. 
So, so in my, I didn't have time to, to flesh all this out, but in my dissertation, I, I work to show the connections between Deuteronomy and Proverbs. Okay. And so fear of the Lord, it's the same didactic structure. It's the same covenantal structure. It's it, 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 the same motivation, the same rewards and punishments, like the whole, the whole thing. And so over and over again, I didn't have time even, it's in my notes that we're going to email you. I mean, he says my law, like when he, when in your English Bible it says my teaching or whatever, it's, it's literally Torah, my Torah, you need to embrace the, so, so like he's, he's teaching the law over and over again. And then even listen to like Proverbs five, um, you know, where, where he's warning his son about the foreign woman, like this, this language here, if you, if you know the, the covenant, what is the covenant language in Deuteronomy six, for example, when he's teach the law to your kids, da, 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 da. and then he says, what you're about to enter into a land where you're going to live in houses that you didn't build. You're going to drink from, you know, wine from vineyards you didn't plant. You're going to enjoy all these things. And then what's the covenant curse? Uh, you're going to be taken out of your land and there's going to be people who come in here and they're going to live in houses they didn't build and they're going to drink your, your wine. Da, da, da. Well, in Proverbs 5, that's the exact same language that he's using when he says, keep your way far from her. Do not go near to the door of her house. Lest what? You give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And so that is exactly what he's doing. And so, and again, to, to your point, how, so how do we preach Proverbs and not become prosperity preachers when, when, it's, when you're holding out the blessings and cursings? Well, like I, I point this out when I preach Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, again, go to Proverbs 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. That's the word Torah, my law. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you, so on and so forth. And what happens in Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, you have this covenant structure where the odd verses are the obligation of the human partner in the covenant, and then the even verses are what God is going to do for the human partner if, if they keep the covenant. And so if you don't forget my teaching, guess what? Length of days and years of life are going to be added to you. Verse 3, if you don't you know, forsake steadfast love and faithfulness, what's going to happen? You're going to find favor and good success in the sight of God and man and so forth, so on and so forth. But the question is, who is, and it can get to the end, like, honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits, and your barns will be filled and plenty. The question is, who is the son who does this? It's not you. It's not me. And that's where the, your, the, di, the, the clowny diagram is going to get you messed up. You say, no, no, listen, yeah, there is prosperity coming later. We're going to receive the, the blessings of, that, that God had promised, but we receive them in Christ because he's the son who keeps it. And, and he's the son who receives the curses. Yes, absolutely. And that's where, again, this is uh, Proverbs 3 is applied, I think. Uh, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so he's the one who received the reproof. And part of what being trained in wisdom is, is that we have to become, through training and, and discipline in Christ, the types of people who can handle the covenant blessing. Um, because we're not those kinds of people, right? All right, so we talked about some resources for Proverbs, recommended resources for Ecclesiastes beyond John's commentary. Okay, so, so in Ecclesiastes, yeah, I feel like anytime I'm asked to recommend a, like a, a section of a book I, I wrote on, I feel like 
another Bill Murray movie. What about Bob? When <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss is like, man, there's this groundbreaking new book. Ah, oh, my book. Here it is. You know? um, I would. So Sinclair Ferguson's got a little thing called. Um, I'll look it up here in a second. Ferguson's little book on it. And then um, I found um, uh, Zach Eswine's commentary to be the most helpful. Rick Holland's got a good little book called, I think it's Uneclipsing the Sun. Um, which is a good, sort of popular level treatment of it. The pundit's folly, chronicles of an empty life. I've, it's re- it's little, but I found it to be really helpful uh, as well. And then, um. I would just say listening to Alistair Begg preach through it was really pretty great. Question came in for you, Juan, uh, regarding Job. Do you remember how many sermons you preached from Job? I actually haven't preached through Job yet. I've worked a lot in Job. Interestingly enough, you know, September 11th, 2001, um, everyone wondered, what should I preach? Should I keep going? I preached Job in one sermon. Mm. And um, uh, that's when I first started wrapping my head around Job. And then I've done uh, some in- instructions in it. And I just deeply uh, encouraged working through the book of Job. I don't know. And so, so what I shared, and you'll receive those notes, was an outline of a sermon series I did at High Point when I first got there called Route 66. And I just wanted to expose the church to the whole Bible. And so I preached each book in a sermon. And then I took like first and second, I I did the Hebrew canon. So I did first and second Samuel just as Samuel and then Kings and then Chronicles. Um, I did do the book of the 12 each, each one, but um, the, uh, the, um, that's the sermon structure outline that I shared in that, in that series. But yeah, it's, it's in my mind as to preaching Job in the future. I'm getting ready for Romans starting in January, but uh, yeah, I I think Job is deeply helpful in, in giving us categories for, for suffering when it's not our sin that causes it. We did it once in four weeks as more as a good, Short one, which we'll come back to and do longer in the future, but it was a, it's nice for the preacher to sort of, for you to get your mind wrapped around it a little bit for the future. Any particular resources on Job that anybody can remember? I don't know, let me, let me just say this, and John, you may want to pipe in here, that the, the trick, not the trick, the, the, the difficulty and danger in, in preaching through some of this stuff, it is very repetitive. And so you have to think through, like, I would preach, not that this is wisdom, but, but there's some similar patterns. I would preach First John differently, having preached it, because it's, it's so cyclical with three themes. I would just probably take each of those themes in First John. But, but similarly, 
you know, like you have to, you have to think through a book like Job. Okay. What, what is going on here and how do I put it together? And that's something you have to work through on your own. I, I thought uh, Juan's message was fantastic. And I, I probably, if I was doing it, would do something similar to those insights and just have like one sermon per insight. So like, I'd probably have a couple in the first three chapters where you're getting the narrative and where you're dealing with Satan and how do we, how do we work this out? And then I would probably do, you know, three or four sermons on the friend's advice, a couple sermons on Elihu, and then the end of the book. So I, I would probably take each of those insights and probably turn them to one sermon. So I would probably do a little more thematic. Um, instead of, you could set it up to do like each of the, the dialogues, but you'd be skimming a lot, I think, too. So I, I agree. You've got to – I personally – so just put the, my cards on the table, um, and, and they, these guys can rebuke me. I, and and I, let me say this. I, he's one of the, the greatest pastors we've had in the, in the um, evangelical world in the last 50 years. But I personally – this is John Aiken personally. I think John Piper did a disservice to his church taking seven years to go through Romans. I think we need to expose our people to more scriptures. And if that means still, that means doing more of a 30,000 foot view, well then great, do that. Um, and so I, I just don't, I'm not troubled by taking lar- larger chunks of text and giving them handles for thinking through, okay, when you read this in your, in your quiet time or whatever, here's what you're going to know what the author's doing here. And it's going to help you read it better. Any additional comments on that? He's critiqued Graham Goldsworthy and <laughs> yeah. John Piper today. Yeah. I, just, We're gonna... I haven't added anything to the panel except for that, to point yeah. that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tyler's already been given instructions to destroy the recording. So. Uh, Josh, this question came in. Any recommended resources for illustrations and analogies or the use of? 40,000 classic illustrations. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So, uh, not any specific recommend. Read widely and think about it. Um, I, I find if you find some of the, like the Kent Hughes style commentaries, those can be good. Not to steal their illustrations, but as you go through and they give an illustration, think about what they're doing with the illustration. And a lot of times, that might lead you to something that's a little more personal. Um, ask other people. Nate was just telling me that. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think I'm particularly good at illustrations, uh, but I have three, three <coughs> brothers and a dad who preach. So I'll text them and say, Hey, do you, if you were preaching this and trying to illustrate this, does anything come to mind? And so is John's or, always a movie, isn't it? John's always a movie <laughs> 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 or he's critiquing some great pastor. Um, uh, so that, that has been helpful. I'll, I'll be honest with you. There have been times where I just went and Googled something like, Hey, okay. Like I, I need this story. I just Googled. And, and sometimes it didn't work. It was, you know, you read a bunch of things that were unhelpful, but sometimes I found things that were good and, and you, or found something that I could say, Hey, I actually reminds me of something I can, I can use that. So I would ask members in your church, not just pastors, but you know, you can ask questions like that. I know of guys, and maybe this was, I don't know if you do this. You never talked to me about it, but uh, I know guys who kept filing systems and had themes and things. I just don't have that kind of, I don't have that ability of organization at all. But I do tuck things away now, like in my notes on my phone. So like for suffering, I'll have things that are, I think this is a helpful quote or this is a helpful uh, illustration. So I have tried to get a little bit better at that. So I think those things help as well. But yeah, sometimes you can just Google things. And I've also found sometimes with an illustration, 
you can ask a question. So you, you won't il- illustrate it perfectly, but you can ask a question which elicits in their mind thinking through how would I answer that question. And so you can use that as a way of, so, so I'll you know, illustrate something like, what brings you peace? Like even just simple little things like, like do warm cookies make you happy kind of thing. And that can at least elicit other things for them to think through as well. And that's a few things. Yeah, that I, I, th- I think a lot of it is just um, sort of personalizing, personalizing the text. So it's not just big stories. I don't, I rarely tell big stories. I'm not, I'm not a great storyteller. They're, you know, Swindoll type guys that, can tell 30 minute stories and have you <laughs> crying and laughing simultaneously. That's not me. So they have to be short, but like just add a little bit of interest to it. You know, if, don't just use the minimum amount of words, you know, to make a sort of declarative statement, like just add a, just a little bit of spice. Um, think about it is the biggest thing. It just takes a little, it just takes going like, how can I illustrate this? And thinking about it and Googling <laughs> So you figure I, something well, I, I thought what you said was, I mean, I have that practice. I, there's times where I'll go back into my, I've been told that I'm a little bit intense. So I try to add uh, even a little bit of humor because I, I don't want it just to feel like I'm like bearing down. Uh, but I've had times where I'll be, you know, I'll go look through my notes and I'm thinking, man, I've gone a page and a half and I don't have an application or an illustration. And so I will, and I'll work, I'll ask my wife, I'll ask others, I'll, Find out a way even to do something small and simple so that it breaks up the... I thought that was really, you know, a helpful thing. I think it's helped my preaching because I do that kind of thing. The, um, the guys who wrote Saving Eutychus, they, uh, they made a statement which really was helpful to me. He's, and they say, illustrate the obvious. Mm. And, you know, we tend to... And it is helpful to, to illustrate things that are difficult concepts and those kinds of things. Maybe a word picture or something. But, um, but to kind of reinforce the point you're making, you know, you can illustrate the obvious. And, and the thing about illustrations is an application, that's what connects with people. That's what pierces the heart. That's what people, that's what people remember. And it doesn't have to be long. Like I, I was preaching on, on the Lord's Supper, and, you know, one of the implications I, I fleshed out was because the Lord's Supper unites us to Christ and fellowship into one another, uh, we can't have divisions. Mm. And so I just ask the question, you know, are in the congregation, are you fighting to maintain the unity of the church? Are you more of a shock absorber trying to go and help, help people, you know, kind of absorb conflict and, or are you more of a fuel injector? And so I think just those two images click. And I bet you, over the next week, people are going to start thinking about that language, and it probably will, will come back to mind. And then I asked a question about uh, idolatry, because, you know, Paul's dealing with idolatry in that passage. And so I, as, you know, I used David Clarkson's questions, and when I, one of the things I said is, you know, when, when life is falling out from under you, when, when you're struggling in stress, who or what do you turn to? And in humor, I said, I just kind of wait just a moment. Who or what do you turn to? Bluebell? <laughs> but, but then I just went more deep and ended with pornography. Mm-hmm. You know, so kind of drew them in with the, the humor, but then, you know, kind of they dropped their guard and then I went in. Yeah. We didn't talk about it, but um, a great place, illustration application are great bound up together. In fact, that's what Jesus is doing, right? Is he's applying the true giving, true, but he's illustrating the application and illustration are woven together. It's a great place to 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 do to illustrate is 
like talk about how this would be applied in a life, but actually do it in more of a, um, with real life details. So it's not like, well, you should uh, pray more, but you know, it might, I'd say, you know, maybe it's something as simple as setting an alarm on your phone. So every day when you're doing this, like you, you're coloring this application sort of with real life principles, like Jesus saying, like, you know, notice them on the street corners doing this. He's illustrating and applying together. And so I think like when you just flesh out your application a little bit with real life details, it becomes illustrative. One thing I was going to just say, again, if you're, if you're a parent or at least you're a pastor, so you hopefully you're around young people. I mean, I've got, I've got kids in high school, middle school, elementary school. They bring lost friends with them to church I'm constantly thinking through how does my teenager, how does my middle schooler, how are they going to understand what I'm saying? And are their friend that they're bringing who's not been to church, are they going to understand, understand what I'm saying? And if I was sitting down with them in our living room and trying to explain Proverbs nine to them, how would I maybe adjust things or, you know, the whole put the cookies on the lowest shelf? Like what would I do? Uh, just even that, like you talking to the, to the guy who doesn't know about football, like just, just as simple, oh, he's the guy who does this. Like, how would I, if I'm having a conversation with this person, how would I do that? I try to think through that when I'm preparing my sermons because I want my kids to keep bringing their friends to church, you know? Something just sort of fun I've tried to do a couple times recently is insert something small that has no explanation, but if people get it, they get it. Um, Particularly, I'm thinking about, like, teenagers, so, like, I was talking about Daniel and Daniel two and the order to kill everyone. And I just said, Daniel wasn't there, but he was included, included in order 66 <laughs> and just kept going. And I'm guessing half the congregation just, uh, uh, and just kept going. But all the star Wars nerds out there, especially all the teenagers who watch clone wars, like a bunch of them came to me afterwards, like order 66. And so like, you know, just I, not, you don't want to do too much. You're not trying to be clever, but you are thinking about the, I think about those things. I have three teenage boys and, they're not listening. But if I say order 66, they might say on the way home, you said order 66, you know, like, so I'm thinking about the audience there. Are there ways to engage them a little bit? Just ask Juan, what, what's order 66? It's a Star Wars reference. <laughs> you wouldn't have known. That's okay. Yeah. All right. Um, Nate, can we go too far in preaching Jesus from the Old Testament? Mm, I don't know fully what's behind that question or you know but i would say i struggle to think that we can go too far now if we make up something the text doesn't say then sure um i think that's too far but i john john's used this illustration on our podcast before and it's true so when we played baseball growing up till we actually found out there's a sport called basketball and then we stopped playing baseball but we were, dad would never get mad at us for uh, striking out. He would get mad at us for looking at the third strike. And so he's just like, you got to take a cut. What are you doing? And I think, you know, John said this before on the podcast, but I think you got to take a swing. And if you accidentally preach Christ too much, I think that's way preferable to you didn't get to him at all. So I, I just... Uh, I'm, I'm a maximalist when it comes to Christ-centered preaching in the Old Testament. I actually think he's everywhere. I think, I feel like even in Proverbs 9, I could have gone about three different ways and still preach Christ. And so I think most texts are like that. Uh, I do think it, we've talked about this some today, it takes hard work. It, understanding things Jesus said, studying things, reading back, reading forward. It takes a lot of work. 
Um, but also, we've said this on the podcast too, I think once you kind of make a decision, this is what the Bible's about, it does seem like it somehow opens up in such a, in a way that you, I didn't see before I kind of was went all in with Christ-centered preaching. So I would just say, I would, I would take a, I'd take a cut, I would risk doing more Jesus than less, because at the end of the day, the only way we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another is by beholding the face of Jesus Christ. So uh, I, I hope that I'm showing that off. I'm praying to myself every week, whether I pray it publicly, is uh, I, I want to I hold up Jesus so that they see him, and because they see him, they are made more like him. Yeah, just maybe a pastoral encouragement from there. I think of um, Pilgrim's Progress, where they're in the, is it the, the um, they're imprisoned in the dungeon, their despair, and the key of promise is what unlocks it. And I think in so many ways, seeing Christ in the Old Testament is the key of promise. And I've just seen that, and people in the church, how seeing Christ in the Old Testament unlocks them from despair, even if it's not you wouldn't necessarily connect the dots between what they're struggling with and that there, I think there's something uniquely um, hopeful and faith, faith giving to seeing Christ in the old Testament and seeing God's plan um, sort of un, un, um, unfold in him. So if there's someone here, we'll finish with this question. If there's someone here who's not uh, fully convinced or maybe they're just, um, kind of at the beginning stage of being intrigued and challenged by the thought of Christ-centered preaching and this Christ-centered hermeneutic that you all have been talking about. Is there a particular resource or maybe a couple that you say, read this and read it slowly and consider the instruction there. It was helpful for me or I've seen the fruit of it in other people's lives. Any resource like that? Yeah, so one, your Bible. <laughs> I'm scared. Uh, no, no. Uh, I would. So here's what I would do. Again, let me just go back to as a dad. If you are a parent who's reading the Bible to your kids, you got little kids. I would read the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd Jones, and I, it's really helpful. It's 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 high. It's not high level in terms of like complex. It's just it's not going into the details, but it's showing you big picture how these stories point to Christ. And so I would I would read that with your kids. That'd be one. Ed, Edmund Clowney's book, The Unfolding Mystery, was the first book I read on this. It's, it's little. It's easy to read. Uh, it takes the stories that you grew up with and shows how they point to Christ. And it's, uh, man, I just found myself worshiping as I uh, read that book. And then I um, would encourage you to read uh, Peter Lighthart's uh, A House for My Name, which is like his little Old Testament survey. He does a lot of biblical theology and uh, and there, those those were the ones that were most Goldsworthy stuff. But those were the ones that were the the introductory point for me. And then it just grew from there as I, I began to read other, you know, more um, serious scholars. In, in in one in one sense, on some of them, just going more into the details of the text. But I would I would start, uh, yeah, I would start there. Uh, Nate and John can't say this and say host it, but listen to the podcast. Like, I've been preaching through Daniel, so I've been going back and listening to them the week, and they've been really helpful um, as I've been thinking about it. And then for a book, Knowing Jesus from the Old Testament by Christopher Wright was really helpful for me. I would only add to what John said. So uh, Goldsworthy's According to Promise was as a kind of a simple, helpful one. When I preach an Old Testament text, I go to every single time. They may not always have a reference to this text in there, but I go to According to Promise, House for My Name, 
Selhammer's NIV Com Bible Compact Commentary, um, and then Dempster's Dominion and Dynasty. Uh, there's others I'll read as well, but I always consult those four. Again, sometimes they don't have that text in there, and it's unhelpful, but um, I consult those four every time because I find them to be, uh, one, helpful in understanding the text, but also helpful in driving my affections, uh, which I think is, going back to the question you just asked me, um, if somebody's not convinced of it, I, you know, I would just say uh, the, the whole sense of the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus when they're saying, did my heart not burn within me? I have had more, I mean, I've just had so many lay people who have come to me with Christ-centered preaching in the Old Testament, and, and they, they express, they don't say it like that, but they express a sentiment like that. Uh, and I think there's a reason behind that. Uh, and so I would just commend books that stir your affections because it, it will flow out while you preach. Um, you know, John was kind of tongue-in-cheek saying the Bible, but I actually want to go back to that and just emphasize that. Uh, Keller says, as, as preachers, we should be reading three to five chapters daily of Scripture. And so I, th there is no hack to knowing Scripture. And so if we're preachers of the Word and teachers of the Word, we have to be committed to a regular, robust reading of scripture uh, and a prayerful reading of scripture and and as the more you read year after year after year you just begin to see these connections in scripture um study luke 24 i mean just really understand what is what does jesus mean at beginning with moses you know he is referring to the tanakh you know the law the prophets and the writings you know so Jesus is referencing the Hebrew canon that it says everything. When Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law. You should know these things. Yeah. You know, so it's just all th throughout Scripture. Uh, for me, Goldsworthy's Gospel and Kingdom yeah. was just opened my eyes and, and blew my mind. And, and that was really helpful. Um, as a preacher, you have to invest in Beale's commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, Beale and Carson. Yeah. And, and as you're preaching, one of the helpful things, uh, like even if you're preaching in the Old Testament, has a scripture index. You know, so say you're preaching through Job. You go to Job and you see where those connections are. Um, you know, that, that's just a helpful tool. Uh, if you're not convinced, also, you know, invest in the dictionary, the new dictionary of biblical theology or the dictionary of biblical theology. Uh, Rosner and, and, and those guys, there's some really helpful articles up front, uh, like what is biblical theology, and understand some people mean different things by biblical theology, and they're approaching it in different ways. So just be aware, you know, if you say biblical theology, most people have a general understanding of what it is, but there are different approaches uh, to that even. But, but biblical theology and systematic theology, so it's got articles, then it explains... Um, uh, books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and that begins to give you a taste of the arc of the storyline. And then the third part of the Dictionary of, of Biblical Theology is the different themes, and it helps trace those themes. So those are just resources and helpful instruments. So just one, I was being tongue-in-cheek, but that typically my answer would be is read, read, read your Bible. Um, and to do it, as Nate said, giving yourself the permission to look for these connections. Um, and so Peter Lightheart, he quotes somebody, and I don't know that this illustration is it's not unique to him, but he, 
he just quotes this person who says, the more you read a piece of literature, the more you become like the kind of person who can read that piece of literature. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he uses as an illustration Lord of the Rings. And if, if you, you come to Lord of the Rings, you've ne- if you don't know anything about it, and you look at the word elves, you may be thinking Buddy the Elf, right, or the Keebler <laughs> Elf, and it's not, it's not the same thing. And so, but the more you read the story, the more you learn what elves are and how they function. And, and the same thing is true about the Bible. So you just have to, like, read, read, read the Bible and give yourself permission to see these things. And I promise you will start seeing them. Um, and then the second thing I would say, this is, I would encourage you to at least consider getting this resource for your library. Uh, Jim Hamilton, who's at Southern Seminary, wrote a biblical theology called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. Okay? It's a mouthful, but he, he traces this theme through every book of the Bible. And so I every time I'm about to preach through a book of the Bible, I read his chapter on that book and look at the themes. And uh, his argument is the title of the book. The central theme of the Bible is that God reveals his glory by saving people through judgment. Okay? Juan, in his message earlier, talked about the cross being the culmination of God's wrath and justice and mercy, right? And so if Jim's right that the central theme of the Bible is that God saves people through judgment, that means every text that you're preaching, every text that you're looking at is going to have some degree of God either holding sinners accountable or God being merciful to sinners. And where do the accountability, the justice of God and the mercy of God meet in the cross. So wherever you see in these texts, judgment and mercy, that's going to point you to the cross and how the work of Christ informs that. And so that's been really helpful for my preaching in this way. Uh, Thank you, brothers. I would mention just a couple of others. Goldsworthy was mentioned a lot. Uh, Vaughn Roberts wrote a little book, God's Big Picture, which is basically a synthesis of all of Goldsworthy's stuff. It's very, very helpful. It's very accessible. It's just, it's can, just easier to read than Goldsworthy. It is. Um, also, Alec Matier, an Old Testament commentator, M-O-T-Y-E-R, uh, I have found immensely helpful. And then there is a, a, an NIV study Bible, the Biblical Theology Study Bible, that was edited by D.A. Carson. The notes in that study Bible are phenomenal, um, and especially in regards to what we're talking about. Here, so uh, I would uh, recommend that. Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.